All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from New York City on the 5th day of November 2019. I do want to thank uh, each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to uh, encourage you to continue your comments and Whatever you have to say about this show, if you'd like to share them with us, send it along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable, uh, and I want to welcome two new sponsors this week, Gatling Explorations, Inc., and TriStar Gold Resources. Gatling Explorations uh, is in the process of expanding a nearly one million ounce deposit in Ontario with Dale Ginn as the lead geologist. It is my firm belief the prospects for a high-margin, multi-million-ounce gold deposit is very much uh, in the possibility, within the realm of possibility, and that's why I've added Gatling to my newsletter uh, and have purchased shares of the stock from my own account as well. Gatling's CEO is expected to be on this show to talk more about his company's prospects on uh, the November 26th show. And then there's TriStar Gold. It's developing an advanced-stage gold project. Uh, and Paris State, Brazil, where it has uh, 2 million ounces of high-grade gold in an open pit situation. Uh, a recent economic study of that company's gold project calculated a 5% discounted net present value at $1,250 gold of $264 million. Well, that compares to the company's current market cap of $25 million. So TriStar seems to, to me to be very undervalued, which is why I've added coverage on that stock as well to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And next Tuesday, uh, Nick Appleyard, the CEO of TriStar, will be with me to tell you more about TriStar's prospects in Brazil as they move forward. Um, By the way, both TriStar and Gatling will be joining me at the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver on November 15th and 16th. And I would just like to uh, suggest that if you're in the Vancouver area on those days, uh, you can attend. It's free of charge. and You get a free breakfast and a lunch and cocktails at the end of the two-day uh, sessions. Uh, simply go to J. Taylor Media, J. Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media, click on the banner and enter your name and email, and you will be assured of a position and a seat at the conference. Uh, let me also uh, not forget the um, three other existing sponsors to the, on this show, namely Great Bear, uh, Novo Resources and Irving Resources. In fact, Irving Resources put out some very positive drill results this morning 
from its gold exploration project in Japan. The stock has responded with a gain of around 20% today on this news, so I'm really excited to tell you that Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me right after the first commercial break to help us understand the significance of the high-grade gold results announced by Irving this morning. And I would suggest investors should also keep their eyes on Novo Resources, another Quentin Henning company. While the uh, stock is down a bit today, I believe there may be some very significant news for Novo, given the fact that Dr. Henning has requested to come on this show to talk about Novo on November 19th. Um, he's going to apparently believe he'll have some news and some information by that time. He usually tries to schedule uh, his appearances on this show uh, to coincide with news events, and I, I believe that he probably thinks he's got something significant coming your way, so you might want to make sure you listen to Dr. Henning on November 19th. should also perhaps comment on the weakness of Great Bear's share price. From what I can discern, it is largely related to the sale of flow-through shares by Canadian investors. There may be uh, something like 2 million flow-through shares that are coming onto the market now, which is quite a bit for this small-cap company. And due to tax breaks, you should realize that the Canadian investors, uh, it's advantageous for them. Uh, they pay a bit more for the shares, but they get huge tax breaks. That helps the companies because the companies raise more money with less share dilution. But then what happens is the, comp- the people find it advantageous to sell their shares uh, rather quickly a lot of times, and that can create some real price weakness. Well, I'm looking at this not as, a, uh, as, as something that's not uh, – I kind of expected it realizing that these were going to come onto the market. So I told my subscribers that I was selling some of mine in preparation for this, but I'm really looking for this as a buying opportunity uh, once these uh, shares find their bottom after this selling is over with. So there's a lot going on in the uh, junior share markets. It's a very exciting time today as a downer for gold investors for sure, uh, but longer term, I don't think there's uh, anything to worry about. We'll be talking to Michael Oliver a little bit. And we'll find out what he thinks about that. I've titled today's show, Monetary Failure is Becoming Inevitable. Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Quentin Henning join me today. The title of today's show was taken from a recent article written by Alistair McLeod, who will be with me during the second hour of today's show. He previewed, uh, in previewing the article, I would just like to pass along a couple of his comments. Here's what he said in the giving an overview of the article that he wrote on October 10th. He said, and I quote, An unpleasant conjunction of events is beginning to undermine government finances in more developed nations, including the arrival of a long-term trend of rising welfare commitments with an increasing certainty of a global-scale credit crisis. Those problems are, in turn, the outcome of a combination of the peak of the credit cycle and increasing trade protectionism. Few observers seem aware that an economic and systemic crisis will occur at the same time as government finances are already precarious. However, the consequences are unthinkable for the authorities, and for this reason, it is certain such a downturn will lead to a substantial increase in monetary inflation, end of quote. Well, as I said, we'll hear more from Alistair uh, on the underlying dynamics as to why a monetary failure is inevitable. And as I noted a minute ago, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me to talk about Irving Resources right after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you Michael Oliver is with me once again to try to calm our nerves on a day when gold is getting slammed rather hard. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. 
It's really always good to have you here, and I should remind our listeners once again, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to learn more about Michael's work and hopefully to sign up for his letter uh, because it presents uh, really great value. At least I'm finding that to be the case. I should mention before we get started with Michael that due to demands on his time, he will be joining me every other week from now on. I'm sorry that we won't hear from him uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, uh, but I do like to respect his time, and I would like to remind our listeners that if they truly want to profit from Michael's advice and the many markets that he covers, besides those that we talk about on this show, they should go to OliverMSA.com. Sign up for his letter. Uh, if you're a serious investor, I think you'll find it very well worthwhile, worth your while. What I find Michael to be, uh, from my perspective, is a stability, a force of stability, uh, in a in a time when things seem to be very uh, increasingly chaotic, and so that's that's very very helpful to me. Um, so, um, Michael, I'm I'm really thankful for the time you've given us, and I appreciate uh, any time you can spare. I know that our listeners love to hear from you, uh, so um, really appreciate that you could be with me again. I want to ask you. Um, recently, you said that for gold to make its new moves, its next moves higher, and you sort of target a seventeen hundred dollar price ceiling for the next major move. Uh, you think we need to see some directional changes in a couple of other markets, namely for the dollar to head lower and or commodities in general to uh, take off to the upside. How are those two markets behaving now uh, as we've entered into the month of November? Well, if you uh, go back about uh, early October in the dollar index, cash dollar index, it was trading above 99, up in 99, 99 and a half area. Uh, it's since dropped to 97 area. Right now, it's having a rally back to the upper 97s today, but it's dropped down toward levels that are dangerous for it, uh, mm-hmm. technically speaking, using our work, momentum structure. Uh, it actually closed last week below one of our key numbers, but while that's probably a hint, we prefer a monthly close uh, mm-hmm. down in that low 97 area. But the main point is it's moved in that direction, which I don't think a lot of people expected. Now, uh, simultaneous with that is another major asset category that, again, nobody's watching because it's been quiet for so long, and there's so many assumptions that it'll stay forever quiet, and that's the yeah. commodity complex, excluding gold and silver. Now I'm talking about everything else, crude oil, copper, platinum, which is not a monetary metal, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, the grains, the soft commodities, and so forth. They're waking up. And uh, we've engaged some numbers today on the Bloomberg Commodity Index that hint to us essentially what the dollar hinted the other way last week, namely it's moving in the right direction, in this case upside. Um, The Bloomberg looks like it's a potentially very explosive situation. And it's, uh, I'm seeing it across the board in the commodity complex. It's not limited to crude oil or something like that. It's, it's uh, even copper in a weak economic world has been moving up sharply in the last uh, three or four weeks uh, with no particular good reason, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the reason is <laughs> what your guest uh, later on the show mentioned, uh, that, that is namely monetary. Mm-hmm. Now, we know when the central banks create massive flows or rivers of money, uh, primarily to defend their stock markets and their debt markets. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always go where they want it to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did in 2009 through uh, recently it went into the stock markets of the developed mm-hmm. world. Um, yeah, they like that. And that's where investors had fun. So they put mm-hmm. it there. It worked. You know, it felt good. Uh, it really hasn't felt that good over the last year, year and a half. S&P's up, beating its chest and everything, but if you look at the percent gains it's had since 
January 2018 or since September of 2018, you're talking narrow single percent gains with a lot of huffing and puffing. Yeah. That money has moved into other markets. Gold is obviously one of them. T-bonds was another one, so that's a waning issue. Um, and I think the commodity complex is where the major injection is going to occur, where the investors say, okay, enough. It's not going down anymore. It has a very low risk. It's proven itself as based out, and it's only one way to go. And I think that money is going to flow into commodities, which will be a second wind at the back of gold at that point a validation of what gold's already said. So that's where I'd be looking right now with intense focus is on the area that nobody's looking at, uh, the commodity mm-hmm. complex. Because mm-hmm. if that comes undone on the upside, and I think it could surge 30% rapidly once it clears oh. breakout levels, uh, that's going to upset all kinds of market assumptions, stock market yeah. assumptions, debt market assumptions, and so forth. And uh, it'll be a nice ambush. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what I like to I like to take the work that you have from your perspective uh, at MSA, the objective work that you have, and then I piece that together with people like Alistair McLeod, who's going to be on later today. And Alistair gave us a, a a working framework, a framework, if you will, that can explain why interest rates could actually start going up in this in this market, which nobody's mm-hmm. expecting either. Everybody's expecting they're going to go down, negative, and so forth, even in the U.S. But he points out that at some point in time, as rates go down, the dollar becomes less attractive. People sell the dollars and start buying stuff, commodities, if you will. You know, they started, as you say, that process has already started. He points out the dollar doesn't have to go negative for that to happen. But uh, when it goes down to a certain level below the time preference for other commodities, for other for gold and silver and so forth, we know we can get one and a half or two percent in the forward market in gold. The lease, that's the lease rate. So that's sort of a time preference value for gold. Well, interest rates are below that now in many cases, even in the U.S., so not higher than that anyway in most cases, for at least for treasuries and so forth. So that's interesting to me, Michael. So you, what are your charts telling is telling you about the T-bonds, though? I know that's the market you watch. That's a, that's a big if. We got uh, bullish on T-bonds, meaning lower yields, back last mm-hmm. December. T-bond futures uh, were 141. They surged up to near 170 recently, and now they're in the high 150s, and they're playing with areas where, uh, they he- while they held it last month on the close, uh, enough for us to say, okay, the damage wasn't done, but they certainly tested levels that are critical. Now they're, uh, they had a rally uh, late, late last week or early this month, and they're giving it back up. So we think that the debt market, the government debt market, which has been pursued by investors much like they pursued gold, could separate and head back down now. And the synchronization between bonds and stocks will be the same. Lower prices in bonds, meaning higher yields, will coincide with lower prices in stocks. I'm gonna, I have a gut assumption. <laughs> it's a conclusion my son and I came up with, who's a technician with MSA, mm-hmm. uh, recently. And that is that while the stock market might top here, and other markets might change their trends as well, such as the Bloomberg Commodity Index to the upside and so forth. The real bloodletting in the stock market is not likely to show itself until next quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, our trigger numbers on the, the stock market right now are, are massive and very clear. In fact, they're the clearest I've ever seen in a century of looking oh. at going back and studying our mm-hmm. metrics applied against past markets. Uh, but I think they won't be engaged until next quarter. And part of the reason is that usually when our structures break on momentum, 
they occur at levels that don't make much sense on price charts. Mm-hmm. Right now, if we broke through most of our major structures, it would make some sense on some price charts that, oh, it's breaking down. Mm-hmm. I think what's going to happen is our numbers will adjust up sharply in 30-some-odd mm-hmm. trading days when we get into mm-hmm. the first quarter of next year and uh, the new annual numbers occur as well, such that when we trigger our structures to the downside, it'll be in that time frame, not now. We might maneuver our way toward those numbers between now and January, but not enough to where it creates any panic. So we think that while you may top the stock market at any point here, you're mm-hmm. not going to see any bloodletting until we get into early next year. And I think that's when the real compression, the, the unleashing will occur. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. We, anyway, so it, it should be yep. exciting, but it might be delayed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Michael. I thank you very much. We're out of time. Thank you for the, that insight and, and, and connecting these markets together, the interplay. Very fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look to talk to you in a couple of weeks from now. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that's uh, that's all the time we have for this segment. We're going to be right back with Quentin Henning. Uh, he's going to talk about Irving Resources, which has had quite a day today. It's up some 20%, at least earlier today. I haven't checked in the last hour or so. Very, very exciting story. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me once again. Well, most of you know him, uh, Dr. Henning, uh, as, uh, for his ongoing success uh, at Novo Resources, uh, his exploration success there. But he is also a director uh, and, a, uh, and, a, and an independent geologist and a geologist that's really helping to guide the exploration program for Irving Resources uh, in Japan. So we're really pleased to have Dr. Henning with us again today. I should mention before we say hello to, to Quentin that uh, uh, Irving trades in, in Canada under the symbol IRV. Uh, you can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol IRVRF. Uh, just a little under 50 million shares outstanding, and uh, the stock is up strongly today at $2.08. In fact, as I'm looking at the screen now, it's up about 20% on the day on some really exciting news. So it's really great to have Quentin with me today at a time when, uh, when obviously if people are paying attention, a lot of attention to Irving Resources, 
Thanks for joining me again, Quentin. Absolutely, Jay. Really good to have you. Um, I, as I say, the stock is up really big today on the assays from your Omu from the Omu Gold Project in Hokkaido, Japan. Uh, and as I say, the market has really responded really, really nicely. Uh, what can you tell us? What can you tell investors that they should take away from the announcement today, uh, from the press release, which showed several intersections of, of very significant uh, grades of gold? Yeah, the the news release covers a number of things, but the main focus is on the the drill results that we have from what we call the Omu Center Target. Um, to give a flavor for what this is, it's a, a target. It's basically an area, a geological area that we identified about three years ago uh, through doing prospecting. The re- what drew us into there, believe it or not, okay, were very large boulders of a rock called Center. Center is layered laminated silica. That forms in hot spring pools. Uh, mm-hmm. Hot spring pools are, you know, what sit above some of these high-grade epithermal vein deposits. You know, they're mm-hmm. basically uh, the surface expression. Okay, so when we were working at Omu Town, uh, which is a little fishing village on the coast, we noticed a lot of people had these big rocks in their garden. Uh, we inquired where did, you know, where were people sourcing this? Uh, they indicated it was a, a little cliff next to a farm field north of town we went out and had a look and my gosh you know this cliff sticks up about 12 meters solid center un- unlike anything i had ever seen before mm. you know, absolutely enormous center terrace uh you know basically a fossil hot spring pool okay so fast forward we did a lot of geophysical work we did a lot of geochemical work and identified uh areas that we th- thought would be uh the feeder zone below the center Mm-hmm. And we've we've now drilled eight, uh, you know, widely spaced holes over about one kilometer strike. Uh, the northernmost hole is actually I think 400 meters from the coast. Okay, it's it's right next to the ocean. Ah. Um, so we we drilled these holes with the uh, intention of identifying, you know, hopefully tagging. You know, look, you know, your odds of hitting a high grade vein in an epithermal system are maybe one out of ten. Okay, uh-huh. but we. We managed to snag veins in seven, eight, seven out of the eight holes. Wow! Uh, and you know, appreciable grades too. Uh, we're we're starting to learn more about the system. You know, we we can see a, a fairly extensive vein network uh, emerging at depth. Uh, we've done some recent geophysical work that's enhanced that now. So we've done what's called CSAMT. It's an acronym that's uh, a big mouthful, but it's Controlled Source Audio Magnetotellurics. Okay, and and we did this survey actually while we were drilling. So the drill holes were not oriented on this survey, but the survey has now highlighted uh, this this uh, hydrothermal system. We can basically see the plumbing almost like you can see mm. bones in an X-ray. Okay, so oh. <laughs> it's really a, it's really interesting because uh, you know most of the holes that do have a decent vein intercept are actually in you know intersected what we call the resistivity anomaly. It's a, a ver- near vertical feature that projects down into the ground for quite some distance. And, uh, you know, what we think is going on is that we are still in the near, near surface environment. You know, basically we're, we're kind of at the top of the system, but, uh, you know, there's at least some indication, holes one, four, and five, which there's a cross-section in the news release show that there's a vein that projects straight down into the ground. We've already tagged it over 300 vertical meters, and it's heading straight down to the you know prospective boiling horizon where we think the the thing could go uh, you know become much higher grade. So 
very exciting story. We're going to have to do some deep drilling. Uh, we'll, we'll start that after the first of the year. We, we moved uh, what we call PQ diameter drill pipes and, and equipment over. Uh, that will allow us to drill deeper holes and, and give that uh, deeper, you know, potentially high-grade target uh, a fair test. But I guess what strikes me is that the gold comes all the way to surface. Mm-hmm. You think about this system, you know, these things are, are kind of like, uh, you know, they're like a pressure cooker in a way. You know, the, the hot water in the ground is bubbling away, boiling away, building up steam, and every once in a while, these things just cut loose. And, and the you know, down deep in the ground somewhere, when the things cut loose, we call it flashing. They basically, uh, it's like a giant burp out of the ground. And, and as the fluids come rushing out of the ground, all this wonderful gold and silver starts precipitating. And lo and behold, it, in this system, it looks like uh, a lot of that gold and silver actually made it all the way to surface, which is mm. very encouraging. I see. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at some of these uh, drill, these, some of these values. They have a pretty high silver content there as well, I believe. And, you know, looking at something like, um, well, a meter and a half of 5.3 uh, gold equivalent ounces, uh, uh, grams per ton gold equivalent. Uh, but then there's some extremely high-grade things, too. Uh, a third of a, of a meter at 135 grams per ton uh, gold equivalent. Yes. So I guess I bet what, what you're saying here is that you're, you're seeing the surface. Uh, you're expecting something that's mineable to be quite a bit deeper. I mean, these are, these are pretty, probably pretty narrow veins, and they're vertically, uh, vertically orientated pretty much, I guess, right? Yeah, they are, but the, you know these are also potentially economic. But I think they're leading us down. Like I said, this thing uh, literally just flashed or cut loose. It burped a couple of times. One one episode appears to be reasonably gold rich. The other episode is silver rich. You know why? I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. these things are leading us down deeper into the ground, and you know, with a little luck, we're going to find something very high grade uh, at depth. Uh, yeah. So what you're? Uh, I mean, do you have any idea yet if this is if if you have the right kind of values at depth, would this be probably how would you get down to there? Would you do you speculate that you'd be going with a with a shaft, or could there be some sort of a ramping into it? Yeah, or is that just too early to too well, early to speculate? It's, it's a it's a bit early to speculate, but uh, you know most mines now use ramps yeah. to access. You know, especially in the the depths we're talking about. We're not talking about. A kilometer deep. We're talking about a, you know a few hundred meters, three, four hundred meters. Uh-huh. So usually you you would access something like that with a ramp, no yeah. problem. Yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, do you do you expect there might be some nuggeting issues here because I'm looking at these values and you have these incredibly high values, Mister you know, Nugget? Uh, nugget follows you everywhere. <laughs> Uh, no, this is not a nuggety gold system, Jay. Uh, okay. For, you know, this is this is a, what we'll call a well-behaved fire assayable uh, type of metal system. It's not uh, nuggety like what we have in Australia. I okay. love nuggets. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, this is a, a predictable <laughs> thing. It's a little bit that's easier a, to reconcile. That's a good thing. Uh, and metallurgy. Have any idea about that? Because I think you have. Oh, a, that's yep. that's <laughs> that's the wonderful aspect of these things. Like uh, the whole business strategy we have is to find high silica veins that have mm-hmm. gold and silver. Okay, because that eliminates the need to build a mill. Okay, in Japan, the way you treat this, you mine it, you ship it to a smelter. They actually use it for smelter flux. You get paid uh, a significant percentage. You know, say plus ninety percent of the value of the gold and silver, even get paid for the sil- the silica content, okay, 
and you do not have to build a mill. That's how they mine at Hishikari. That's how they have traditionally mined in Japan. Uh, they mined the high-grade veins and used it as smelter flex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And you don't—you're not, you know, thinking maybe you don't have to then build a mill, which would be a very expensive pro- uh, proposition, I suppose. So, um, you—I should mention to our listeners that you have a couple of pretty prestigious um, strategic investors as well. I think Newmont and yes. Sumitomo, right? Correct. And, yes, Newmont and Sumitomo Corporation, and you know, historically, those two companies worked together for a very long time. And um, and and what sort of percentage of this very small um, share number of shares out are, are in the public float or owned by uh, retail investors, uh, more let's or see. less? Yeah. So there's about I think forty eight or something million shares out at the yeah, moment. Yeah. Uh, Newmont holds about seven or eight percent. Uh, Eric Sprott holds about ten. Uh-huh. Um, you know, management and insiders, uh, you know, control uh, around twenty. So you know, it's very tightly held. Um, you know, Newmont does have the right to tip in two more tranches of money. Uh, I suspect they'll probably do that. You know, based on the encouragement we're seeing. Uh, you know, so it, you know, it's a unique company. We're we're focused on a very strategic business model in a new jurisdiction. But it's also well-structured, and we've got the right partner. Sure do. Just uh, one last question before I let you go. What news uh, events? Uh, will there be more drill holes coming out anytime soon? Yes, and that's the other part of the news release. Okay, we, we're drilling at Omui Mine Site, which is about 10 kilometers south of Omui Center. Omui, there's actual veins sticking out of the ground. Mm. Uh, we are drilling some shallow holes. We're also drilling some deeper holes, testing CSAMT targets. Uh, we, I think we're on hole number nine right now. We finished hole eight the other day. Um, we have seen a number of veins in the holes to date, uh, and we've also seen some, you know, electrum and uh, silver sulfur salts in, in one, you know, in some of the veins. And one in particular is about 1.6 meters wide. So uh, I would expect good news out of the holes from Omui. Uh, and then next year, early next year, we'll fire up drilling again at Omui Center. We'll go back and retest this area, hopefully test that that deep high-grade potential. And are we looking at this, a similar kind of a, of a, um, of a target here, the, this other one you're talking yes. about? Yes. Uh, all this, of these the center? Are, yes, they're all high-grade uh, epithermal veins. And what's really exciting about Omwe is the, the high-grade that we see is actually very near surface. So when I talked about the system burping, you know, at Omwe mm-hmm. Center, same thing happened at, at Omwe. So we actually see... Uh, little particles and pieces of very gold-rich and silver-rich uh, vein material that's been flushed up, you know, little fragments and stuff that's been flushed up into the near-surface environment. So we know there's something happening at depth. Mm. Wow, very exciting. Well, obviously, the market uh, is somebody somebody's paying attention with the stock up now. I see uh, 37 cents in U.S. money. That's up 21.38% on the day. So obviously, people are paying attention. Thank you very much, Quentin, for being with us. And uh, I guess we're going to have you on in a couple of weeks, hopefully, to talk about Novo as well. So we're really, really looking forward to that. But thanks so much again for being with us. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Sure thing. We'll have good news for people in a couple of weeks around Novo or between now and the next time we talk. Ah, excellent. Can't wait. Okay, thank you very much. Well, folks, we do have to go to commercial break. But don't go away because Alistair McLeod will be with us. Some very important things to talk about. And uh, Alistair always helps us understand not that something is going to happen, but why he believes it will happen. So uh, I hope you'll stick around and listen to what Alistair McLeod has right after the break. Don't go away. 
Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Canada. Having recently made four major gold discoveries, GBR is now fully funded to drill 90,000 meters through to the year 2020 as part of a very active exploration program. Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining, a Red Lake veteran, is a significant shareholder following a recent $5.7 million investment. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again one of our more, more regular guests, Alistair McLeod. And so most of you know him as a, an ex-stockbroker, an ex-banker, and as an economist. He uh, writes for Gold Money. He is a senior fellow there uh, and the head of research at Gold Money. And he writes a brilliant weekly commentary that I think is a must-read if you really care to, not, to know or to try to understand the reasons why markets are likely headed in the direction they are. Not just, you know, you can say some people are, are satisfied enough to know which direction the markets are going and they don't want to know anything more. But those of us who really try to understand and, and want try to figure out if someone is full of baloney or not want to know the reasons for it and understand it. And Alistair walks you through, uh, I think, deeply into um, the reasons why things are happening and not just the fact that they are happening. So that's why I'm always so pleased to have him with us. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. It's always good to have you. Um, And I want to talk to you today about an article you wrote on October 10th. This is primarily what I want to focus on, if we can. Monetary failure is becoming inevitable. And I'd like to just read the first couple of paragraphs of the introduction, because I think that really lays the groundwork, the framework for for the article itself, and I quote, uh, an unpleasant conjunction of events is beginning to undermine government finances in a more developed in the more developed nations, including the arrival of a long-term trend of rising welfare commitments with an increasing certainty of a global-scale credit crisis. Those problems are, in turn, the outcome of a combination of the peak of the credit cycle and increasing trade protectionism. Few observers seem aware that an economic and systemic crisis will occur at the same time as government finances are already precarious. However, the consequences are unthinkable for the authorities, and for this reason it is certain such a downturn will lead to a substantial increase in monetary inflation. End of quote. Well, you started out your October 10th article uh, stating that, as, we, as I just read, an unpleasant conjunction of events is beginning to undermine government finances in more developed nations. Uh, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about what those uh, w- what those events are. 
Yes, certainly, Jay. Um, I think, I mean, we've, I'm sure your, your listeners have heard me bang on about the credit cycle and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that is coming to fruition. But, but there, there is another aspect of, of government finances which um, hasn't been hitting the headlines recently, and that is the increasing cost of government welfare. And um, you may remember back in 2012 that an economist called Lawrence Kotlikoff estimated, he estimated the net present value of uh, uh, U.S. government welfare liabilities to be in the order of $220 trillion. He was admittedly um, the highest um, uh, forecast, if you like, of that. I mean, but, but there were others saying it's going to be $100 trillion or $80 trillion or whatever. The key to this is uh, to understand that these uh, welfare commitments are now beginning to hit government finances, not just Mm -hmm. in America, but uh, particularly in Europe and also in the UK. Now, the UK government has actually for the last, I suppose, 15 years or so, started to try and address this by raising the age at which um, uh, pension entitlement kicks in. Uh, this is for the state pension. For the state pension, mm-hmm. um, the, the in, in America, you've got some huge, huge potential costs on uh, on on the health system, um, yeah. as as indeed we all have. Uh, it's not just America. Now, with these uh, costs coming due. Um, when you see that this welfare bill is now rising and accelerating, uh, and at the same time we have a credit crisis uh, in the offing, I mean, if, if you want a visible um, uh, sign that this is developing, just look at what's happening with the German banks, the major banks. Um, and I think if you looked at that, it, you would be convinced that there is something nasty, if you like, in the credit cycle uh, likely to happen. If you put together those two things, a credit cycle which is turning sour, um, and that would uh, inevitably lead to um, a a weaker economy, both for America and also for other nations, and these welfare commitments rising, you can see that very rapidly government finances are going to get into a very, very deep water. And that was really the thrust of the article. It was the conjunction of these two things coming together like two icebergs, mm-hmm. you know, sort of about to crash into each other. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, we're probably sitting in a boat sort of watching one coming from one side, another iceberg coming from another side. And guess yeah. who's going to get crushed? You know, <laughs> can right. we row ice- out of the way quick enough? <laughs> the icebergs have a way of surviving. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you have the credit cycle, which suggests that um, – you know, if you if you have a credit cycle, anything halfway as severe as we had in 2008, 2009, some people, I think, probably including yourself, think it could be a lot worse this time, given the dynamics, given all the debt and all of the, the well, we've never solved anything in the past. We've only just layered it on. Uh, so you have the credit cycle, which suggests decreasing earnings or decreasing revenues for government, de- decreasing tax revenues at the same time that you have this... Uh, uh, dramatic increase in expenditures by government for the welfare state. I suppose some of that has to do with the, di- with the, uh, uh, with the aging population and the younger, uh, reducing number of younger people producing and paying into it. It's certainly what the Western world seems to have is the aging of, of their population, right? 
Yes, that certainly doesn't help. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think by far the most important um, thing is, is uh, okay. I mean, you know, we accept demographics, and indeed that is yeah. that must be part of um, any economist's forecast, the net present value of those future liabilities. But um, the, I think the real problem is that those uh, costs are now sort of beginning to come through, and the problem with the credit cycle is that um, the dynamics behind it are far greater than the dynamics behind the Lehman crisis uh, back in 2008. And on top of that, we've got a touch of the Smoot-Hawley's. Now, Smoot-Hawley mm -hmm. was the Tariff Act, uh, which um, uh, was passed by Congress on the 30th, 31st of October uh, 1929. And that was the month when Wall Street crashed. It could see this one coming. And um, so, you know, and, and nobody's really researched this, but it looks to me, every way I look at it, there is a synergistic effect, if you like, a con um, you know, where one and one equals three, where you combine um, the credit cycle, which, in, in, which peaked in 1929, with uh, a, 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 a jacking up of tariffs and uh, mm -hmm. trade protectionism, and you're going to collapse the economy. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really as simple as that. And uh, so um, I'm afraid that the um, comparison with 1929 to 19 1932 is um, really quite alarming. And on top of that, you've got a welfare state, a costly welfare state, which is considerably more expensive than any welfare payments that were paid out in, uh, in, in, in 1929 to 1930s. So you can see that there's a conjunction of events here which we haven't seen before. Um, now, we just hope we can navigate our way through it. But mm -hmm. um, I would be rather skeptical about um, attempts to do that uh, being successful. I mean, you know, the first thing that is likely to happen is that a bank um, will get into trouble. Now, the reason I, I focus on Germany is really twofold. Firstly, um, we know that the major banks, and particularly Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, you've just got to look at their share price, and they've, mm -hmm. got, they've got problems. We also know that the German economy is tipping uh, rapidly into recession um, because their major customer is China, and China is um, not buying autos anymore. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the German economy is tipping into recession. Now, we do know, therefore, that these banks are going to have an increase in non-performing loans. They're going to have um, uh, uh, you know, sort of other problems related with their commercial lending. And, uh, you know, and this is this is... Uh, after or on top of all the problems that Deutsche Bank uh, and Commerce Bank have had, which has driven their share prices down to a tenth of, um, of, of their highs. So you can see that uh, it's quite a nasty situation there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if uh, confidence starts being eroded in the, in the banking sector in the Eurozone, it's not just the German banks. I mean, <laughs> there are quite a few others. Now, having said that, I, I, I don't actually think that Deutsche Bank will just go bust and mm -hmm. uh, all depositors will sort of face getting nothing. What I do see is um, it will be rescued. Mm -hmm. um, it will be nationalized or it will be supported by the German government or something, yeah. Um, but you know this this is this is a, a rolling situation. And in another article, I compared it with um, the Credit Anstalt crisis in 1932, I think it was. Um, now that was that was um, Credit Anstalt had been put together out of um, a number of bust banks um, or failing banks, mm -hmm. uh, and eventually it failed as well. So um, if you look at the Deutsche Bank example, Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, you know perhaps they may be sort of merged into a super bank with a certain amount of government money chucked in mm -hmm. it. 
but mm-hmm. then it'll fail again. This is the problem. And, um, you know, in 1932, we had Credit Anstalt in Austria, which is a relatively small country in, the, in, in Europe. Uh, this time, Germany is a far more serious matter. So, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the sense that there is uh, room for dropping the ball through this credit crisis, I think we should be really quite wary of um, having money in banks, if you like, in the more general sense. Yeah, for sure. People don't realize that they're really unsecured creditors to the banks, and it's not really their money once they put it there. That uh, is, that's correct, yes. Yeah, you know, uh, I think the article that you're referring to is your September 27th article, and people can go there at goldmoney.com and read it, The Ghost of Failed Banks Returns. I think that's the article you're referring to. Do you, um, yep. do you recently there's been some you know, some unrest in the uh, in the repo market, in the U.S. Treasury repo market. Do you you think those are perhaps some tremors of, of what you're talking about? Yes, I do. I've got a little anecdote. Um, uh, we had a, a bank in this country called Northern Rock. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was uh, in December 2007, I happened to be sitting in the offices of uh, one of the, the large money brokers in London. And I was suddenly told by the dealers that the uh, interbank market had seized up. And nobody really knew why. And I sort of thought, well, you know, to me, this was actually a very serious thing because um, as a follower of Austrian economics, understanding banks, understanding um, banking cycles and all the rest of it, when you get the liquidity in the market, in the wholesale money market, effectively disappearing, this Mm. is a very serious issue. Two months later, uh, yes, it was two months later, it was in February 2008, um, uh, Northern Rock um, appealed to uh, the government to be rescued. And it had to be, it had to be taken over by the government. That mm-hmm. was two months from that point. Now, you can't definitely say the reason that uh, the interbank market uh, seized up was because Northern Rock was going bust. No, but you can see that the situation is uh, an interesting coincidence. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. This time, this time we have another coincidence, um, and uh, uh, we have the repo market failing. Now the repo market is a lot bigger than uh, the interbank market in London because the interbank market in London is an unsecured liquidity market. You don't have to put up any collateral. Basically, you have credit lines with all the major banks you're likely to deal with in, in, in the LIBOR market. Mm-hmm. In the case of the repo, this is the, the numbers are far, far bigger. Mm-hmm. Now, it so happened that the day um, uh, the repo rate shot up to 10% was the day uh, when uh, Deutsche Bank um, uh, formally sold, it completed its sale of its prime brokership, prime brokership to, um, uh, to BNP. Now, mm-hmm. you can imagine, or you can, well, I can imagine that, that uh, under those circumstances, um, you know, that the, the deposits which are held um, on uh, Deutsche Bank's uh, prime brokerage uh, business, mm-hmm. and these would, these would be other banks, it would be hedge funds, whatever, um, uh, you know, they may not actually travel with the business being sold. So you mm-hmm. can have a situation where uh, someone is left, um, you know, 
without mm-hmm. any funds, and they need to mm-hmm. cover. And I think that that you know the coincidence of the events, um, mm-hmm. I think, is interesting. But going back to the Northern Rock thing, um, you know, I just see a seizing in the up of the markets uh, in the wholesale money markets, and you know, you count one, two, three months, whatever, and you got a problem. And uh, that's what happened last time, and that um, uh, I think could well happen again. Mm-hmm. Alistair, why do you think so few people see this? I mean, you, in a, in, to quote your opening remarks in this article, few observers seem aware that an economic and systemic crisis will occur at the same time as government finances are already uh, precarious. Well, I mean, the things you're talking about, they're not particularly new. Why do you think people can't put two and two together on this? I think it's vested interest. Um, I mean, if you know, if you're an investment manager, then basically your livelihood depends on you being bullish. Yeah. So, dare you think of anything else? No. And I think if you're an ordinary person, um, you just go about your day-to-day life. You don't, you know, you don't necessarily, um, you know, think about these things too much. You don't want to address something which is likely to be a problem. You don't want to sort of um, anticipate something nasty. Very, very few people do that. Most people. People go through life sort of happy-go-lucky. I mean, you, you know, look at the number of people, 78%, well, I think was the last number I saw in, uh, in in the United States, of people on salaries live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. You know, hold on a minute. Um, is that, so, you know, are those people actually thinking something might go wrong? No, they're <laughs> not. And I, I really think that you've got this sort of human nature, um, yeah. particularly when governments basically rescue everything. You mm-hmm. know, we're never going to have a problem because the government says so. The government will sort it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, they won't. They seem to paper things over for a while. And uh, uh, so, yeah, and, and I guess you wouldn't if you were, say, working for J.P. Morgan or somebody, go on CNBC and start talking uh, in negative terms because it could actually start to trigger things too. So you, you know, you don't want to be the one that starts the uh, uh, well, the avalanche, the avalanche from going down the mountainside. Good heavens, no! I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? So, 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 Alistair, here's the thing. Now, um, you know, as as you say, th- this is going to come as a shock to the authorities. Uh, and how will they respond? I mean, we, we can probably judge that they'll respond. The, the central banks will start printing money like mad again, right? And, and then what happens to interest rates? Do we keep seeing interest rates plummet, go down uh, lower and lower, at least for, well, the, for the start? There is a, um, if you like, there obviously is a conflict here because um, as the uh, rate of money printing ramps up, um, we would expect the purchasing power of the um, fiat currency to diminish. Right. Now, under under those circumstances, there were, you know, interest rates should rise. Mm-hmm. So I think what you'll have is you'll have central banks with a real problem. Um, you know, the market will be demanding higher rates. In other words, the government won't be able to fund itself at the rates um, uh, w- which. Sorry, I just had an interruption here. The government won't be able to um, fund itself um, at anything like the rates which the Fed is trying to focus on, force on the markets. Um, And, uh, you know, then you'll have uh, an unfunded situation which um, then reverberates into the foreign exchange markets. So you can see that uh, a government crisis in funding could arise very, very rapidly by um, uh, the necessity yeah um down, so bond yields down so the government fund itself yeah and, and, you know also uh what you've talked about recently 
uh, with respect to the world's reserve currency, the dollar, at some point in time, uh, as rates decline, the dollar becomes something people don't really, I mean, it seems as though it's likely that people won't want it. You talked about, uh, you know, the normal interest rates or the time preference rates, as you put it, that gold has a one and a half to two percent preference rate. And everything, as you pointed out, commodities have a preference rate. Do you see the possibility then of a dollar that that is no longer in favor uh, as the world's reserve currency, uh, thereby thereby uh, leading to the destruction of the world's reserve currency? And as measured in that currency, commodities rising very dramatically. We might have an inflationary problem. Yes, I think that's um, that, that's 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 almost certainly going to happen. Quite how we get there is 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 something <laughs> which is a matter of debate. Yeah. But um, uh, bear in mind that the U.S. budget deficit has been financed almost totally by foreign purchases exactly. of dollars. Now, um, with with global trade uh, contracting, um, there is no need for foreigners to buy more dollars. If anything, they are overweight dollars. And the interesting thing is that this was a point that Mark Carney was making at his Jackson Hole speech uh, when he was saying that too much too much money uh, from emerging market economies is tied up in dollars. You know, they should be released so that, uh, in, you know, in, in, uh, investment, if you like, can continue. Uh, now, he actually said that at Jackson Hole. I thought that was yes. quite brave. But yes. <laughs> but it does highlight a problem, and that is that the world is one way or another moving on from the dollar being the reserve currency. We don't know how quick, quickly it'll happen, mm-hmm. but at this time, at this time, um, you know, the government uh, 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 borrowing requirements are likely to escalate. I, this is not this yeah. is not good news. Uh-huh. No, and where is the where is the money going to come from to finance that if the foreigners, if foreign credit isn't forthcoming anymore, the Chinese and, and others, the Japanese too, for their own reasons, don't have endless resources to keep buying uh, and financing U.S. living beyond its means. Uh, the scale of the problem is to be grasped, you talked about, with just a minute or two left here. Um, I mean, what is this going to mean? And I mean, we could see, I mean, the timing is impossible to know. This idea of the world's reserve currency. I mean, everybody that I talk to, people, that financial people say, well, Taylor, you're just smoking something funny because there's no way any other currency has the liquidity to go to as a world's reserve currency. What do you say to, to people that say that? Well, uh, I, they're, they're making a statement of the obvious, and this is the the real problem, I think, that uh, central bankers have. You know, they're hooked on the dollar, and they don't really know what the replacement is. Yeah. I mean, you've got three blocks, really, haven't you? You've got yeah. uh, the dollar, you've got the euro, and you've got the yuan. Now, if the dollar's going down the tubes, then either the euro or the yuan has got to take over. And do we want either of those? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. think so. <laughs> you know, it's it's quite a problem, isn't it? Um, so I can see that there's going to. I mean, in terms of the uh, geopolitics of finance, uh, I think is 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 another issue which um, is rapidly coming up and uh, could be a major problem. Now, after the next credit crisis, then this is really going to come into focus. Okay, thirty seconds. Um, Short term interest rates heading down lower. Short and, term, yes, manipulated done, yeah. And so the equity market could remain strong for a little while longer. Uh, it should be good for treasuries and for the for gold in the short term. 
Yeah, basically, I th I'm not too sure that it would be good for yields. I mean, I think the Fed can uh, sit on interest rates at this level, maybe even bring them down a notch in December sort of thing. Um, but uh, I think that markets have really discounted uh, this game, I think, quite a long way now. And mm -hmm. I think if the, if from here, if we get more evidence that uh, the economy is tanking, then I think that that will probably start driving equities. All right. We'll have to leave it go at that. Uh, thank you so much, Alistair, for being with us. Always always a pleasure having you. Always an uh, interesting, uh, stimulating discussion when you're with us. So I, I thank you very much and look forward to doing it again sometime very soon. So thank you very much again. Thank you, Jay. All righty, folks. So that is all we have for this week, all the time we have. And uh, next week, my guest will be Nick Appleyard of TriStar. John Rubino will be with me and my friend Eric Coffin. Uh, as well. And so until next Tuesday, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 